Welcome to the Joy Powered Workspace podcast, where we talk about embracing joy in the workplace. I'm Susan White, owner of Susan Tinder White Consulting. With me is my dear friend and co-host, Jody Curtis, owner of Purple Inc., an HR consulting firm. Our topic today is executive comp and incentive compensation. Now a word from our sponsors. Do you have a goal to be better at something in your work life, like delegating, conflict management, or aiming your signature strengths? Listening to podcasts, reading books, and attending training are great, but to really put things in context for your specific situation, the most effective method is working with a coach. Purple Inc. offers one-on-one coaching in a variety of areas, like Clifton Strengths, human resources, leadership, and career coaching. We'd be happy to talk with you over the phone or through a video call. Visit purpleinkllc.com. That's purpleinkllc.com for more information on how we can help you reach your goals. Our guest today is going to be Jennifer Loftus. This is Jennifer's second time with us as she was the star of our Compensation 101 episode that launched on September 16, 2019. We received great feedback on this show and a number of requests to ask Jennifer to come back to cover executive compensation and give us any other incentive program advice she might have. As you recall, Jennifer is a founding partner of and national director for Astron Solutions. Welcome back, Jennifer. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us again. We have all heard the terms incentive, bonus, and variable compensation, but what are they and how do they really differ from each other? Mm-hmm, certainly. And Jody and Susan, thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. So let's dive into our topic uh, that we're talking about here. And as we're thinking about these terms, variable compensation, bonus, incentive, a lot of times in casual conversation or even in the workplace, we'll use those terms interchangeably. But really, although they are related, they are distinct. So if I'm, if I'm thinking about this, first I'm going to start big picture. And that big picture is variable compensation. That's the umbrella term. So everything that we give to an employee that is not fixed, like think about someone's salary, right, or their hourly rate. Basically, they know what they're going to get each paycheck. But variable compensation, it might go up, it might be down, it might not be there at all, right? So that's that umbrella term. And under variable compensation, we have bonus and incentive. And these are two terms that really get used interchangeably, but there are some key distinctions between them. If I start with the more complicated of the two, if you will, incentives, that's where I as the employee, I have a goal that's set for me. And I know that if I achieve that goal, I will receive a certain reward, right? Maybe it's $1,000, $10,000, two weeks paid vacation, right? Whatever that might be. I know if I achieve the goal, there's a reward that I'm going to get. So that's what an incentive is. As opposed to a bonus where the employee doesn't know that it's coming and they don't necessarily know what they did to earn that compensation. So it might be like, hey, we had a great year this year. Thanks, everyone. Here's $500 
you know, something like that. So that's the distinction between a bonus and an incentive. You know, Jennifer, as you're talking, I keep thinking I was talking to my 17-year-old nephew yesterday mm-hmm. who was telling me he got a promotion at the local car wash. Ooh, congratulations to him. <laughs> and he said that now he won't, and he gets pretty big tips at the car wash, but now he's going to be paid a flat hourly rate, but he'll earn incentives on sales. Uh-huh. I said, what, is, what does that mean to you? And he said, I have no idea, but promotion. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, I can tell you, I can, I can reflect back on early in my career when we were recruiting for jobs that were incentive-based. And I can remember that we as recruiters, we didn't really understand the plan. And so we were having a very difficult time explaining it to the candidate. Mm-hmm. And so we had kind of a uh, go back to school type of event where we just really sat down with the blackboard, with the line of business, understood that incentive plan. You wouldn't believe how much better our recruiting got when we understood what it was that was going to drive, we, that we wanted to drive behavior. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me at all that the, your nephew's got a job. He doesn't even know what those incentives <laughs> are based on. You're <laughs> excited though. <laughs> Aww, so sweet. So, Jennifer, I know a lot of organizations that I talk to, they're hesitant about using variable comp Mm -hmm. because there's this belief that employees want to know how much is going to be in their paycheck consistently. Mm -hmm. What do you say to these organizations? Why might they want to consider changing things up and maybe using incentives or bonuses. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if I think first from the employee's perspective, there is a certain level of comfort in knowing that I'm going to get X hundreds or X thousands of dollars every paycheck. And that uncertainty that goes along with variable compensation, whether it's a bonus or incentive, can be unsettling to employees and to employers alike. But there's a lot of good potential that can come out of using variable comp. And the first is driving performance. So if I build on the example of your your nephew who just got promoted there, right? So now, assuming there's some education in terms of what that sales incentive is based on, now he will know, oh, I need to do this. I need to get more sales or, or upsell for custom packages, things like that. Not only does that help him, but also now the organization is increasing their revenue. Perhaps they're seeing an increase in sales of services that maybe had fallen off in the past. Right. So it all comes back to driving performance in the organization, driving performance of you know, to a higher level and to stimulate business where there might not have been some before. In addition, this helps employees to achieve goals that have been set for them because they might say, well, why should I invest the effort? Why should I care? Why should I take the time to achieve that goal? Well, hey, if I do, I'm going to get this reward. And for a lot of people, that extra take-home pay could be very beneficial, particularly around the end of the year, the holidays, those sorts of things. And lastly, as I'm an employer and thinking about why I might want to explore using variable compensation, keep in mind that this expands that employee's total rewards package without adding to fixed costs, right? So we're not increasing that salary burden. If there's performance, then they get paid and we're happy to pay because there's performance. But if there isn't, we're not taking on that additional payroll if you will. So those are three reasons why I would encourage those who are hesitant to start exploring variable compensation. 
And so you just mentioned a few, but overall, what are the some of the necessary elements for a successful incentive plan? Mm-hmm, certainly. Well, there are a number of them. We don't have enough time in your podcast to go through all of them, but I'll, so I'll stick to the most critical ones. And the first is, assuming you want to use an incentive as opposed to a bonus, that you have actual goals for your employees to achieve. And also very important that those, those goals are measurable, right? A lot of times I work with clients and they say, we want to do an incentive and, and here's the goal. And we say, okay, well, in your accounting system, in your payroll system, whatever system, your purchasing system, can you track metrics related to this goal? And many times they'll say, no, we can't. So mm-hmm. then we might say, well, okay, then how is this going to work? Right? So we want to make sure we've got those goals and we have ways to measure them. The third thing we need to have is what's called line of sight, S-I-G-H-T. And that means that I, as an employee, the actions that I take in my job can actually make that goal happen, you know, that I can achieve that goal. So I have control over that. If we don't have line of sight, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't implement a variable comp plan, but we have to think about, you know, are we driving more overall organizational performance, maybe a bonus is more important or appropriate. So we've got to have that line of sight. Last two items that are essential for success, frequent communication. This is not the kind of thing where we say, oh, January 1st, here we go. Here are the goals. We'll see you December 31st. Now, we have to have constant feedback, letting people know where are we in our performance vis-a-vis those goals. What may have changed in the external environment that could help or hinder our success in achieving those goals? So that frequent communication and going hand in hand with that transparency, right? We have to share the good. We have to share the not so good. We're not keeping secrets when it comes to an incentive or variable compensation plan. So everyone needs to know where they stand at all times. I think that makes such good sense. And I think back about my example where we had a part of our recruiting team that was focused on trying to attract talent on an incentive plan. Mm -hmm. We learned from that first time experience that we needed to be part of every incentive change meeting. We needed to be just right there, elbow to elbow with the line of business people because we're the front, front line that was going to be selling the incentive program as one of our total rewards. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Exactly. Jennifer, in your practice, do you see incentives used primarily for executives, or are you seeing it offered across the board to all employees? Oh, yes. And let me preface my response with a first clarification. So when I hear the word executive, I tend to think people who are in the C-suite, so like a chief executive officer, chief financial officer, although titles vary widely from one organization to another. But executive to me means that really top layer of leadership. And if we were having this discussion probably... 20 years ago, that would be an easy question to answer. I'd say, yeah, this is for executives and it's really not part of the total rewards package for everyone else in the organization. And times have changed. Employers have realized that variable compensation can be appropriate for all levels in the organization, from the CEO all the way down to whatever is that most entry level position. So you've got opportunity as long as there is line of sight. 
Now, in practice, I'm really seeing something kind of in the middle there. So many of my clients that I work with are expanding variable comp opportunities down through middle management to individual contributor professionals. And as we get more into the hourly employees, it depends on the role because they may have safety incentives or they may have sales incentives that they're working with. So there may be tailored programs that work for those hourly positions. But for the most part, my clients, they are using variable compensation much more broadly than in the past. You know, Jennifer, that reminds me too. Many moons ago, I worked for a company that owned a travel agency. And of course, most people don't use travel agents anymore, at least least for airline flights. I Mm. think we use them for cruises or big packages. But I remember being appalled one day when I discovered that the airlines, and this was 20 years ago, probably, the airlines would have different incentives going on to incent the travel agents Mm -hmm. so many flights for them. So they were, of course, directing their customers to a particular airline. And I remember, you should always be looking at the cheapest price, right? Like it never dawned on me that that they might have incentives to sell certain airline or flight. Surprising really to think about people we work with or salespeople or customer service people that might have a specific incentive like the car wash guy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly. And if we think about, this is a little bit more of a negative example, but think about Wells Fargo a few years back where all of their uh, branch staff were incentivized to open accounts and and sell more product. And that can show you the downside of incentives, but also helping us to say, hey, this person that I'm working with are they on an incentive do they have my best interests at heart or is there something else working behind the scenes right exactly so Jennifer if I'm thinking about implementing a variable comp plan where should I start Ooh, all right so if we're thinking about implementing a variable comp plan there's a few starting points where we should begin. And the first is that we want to ask a lot of questions, right? People often assume that, all right, let's implement a variable comp plan, let's implement a bonus plan, and this is something that I can whip up over the weekend in my HR silo and I'm good to go. No, (laughs) take the opposite of that. So first we want to ask a lot of questions related to the topics we talked about just a few moments ago. So goals, measurability, line of sight, communication, transparency. Do we have those? If yes, great. If not, can we build them, right? And then how much commitment are we going to have around those? After that, let's assume that we have all of those in place or can get them in place in the next couple of months. Then I would start small and I would run a pilot. Let's focus on one department or one function where we think, yes, we can track measurable goals. We've got that commitment to communication. Let's pilot it there and see how it goes. Maybe we need to make some tweaks. Maybe there's some things we hadn't considered. And we can do that in a relatively safe environment before expanding out to the entire organization. 
in addition, we want to make sure that we're not working in our silo of HR. So let's work with finance. Let's work with our line managers or the leaders of that line department. So we're getting their views and their input to make this program as successful as possible. So for example, one organization that I worked with many years ago, healthcare organization, well-known name, and they were trying to enhance their business operations. So they were having difficulty collecting on the receivables. Their purchasing department wasn't always looking at the lowest price, but still quality products to buy. So he said, all right, let's start with an incentive related to the accounting department. Figured out what kind of metrics we could implement, worked with the accounting department directly, their leadership built that plan, did some tweaking in a pilot test, and then expanded that concept out to purchasing and then IT and even HR in terms of talent acquisition. So you can start small with a pilot and then build out successfully from there. I like that approach. So Jennifer, what makes executive compensation different than regular compensation? Who gets it? Why is a company smart potentially to design an approach that works? Susan, excellent question because a lot of times when we talk about incentives, people immediately start thinking executive. So it's important to explore this concept of executive compensation. And it may seem like there's a lot of difference between, you know, quote unquote, regular or staff compensation and executive comp. After all, there are people who specialize in just executive compensation. And certainly there are nuances. But in reality, it's very similar to the comp that you and I receive right, from our employers. The two main differences that I see are elements of the total rewards package, that being either depending if you're a for-profit or a non-for-profit, publicly held, privately held, long-term incentives and or stock, and then perquisites. And in today's world, we really don't see as much with perks like we did, again, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So now that key differentiator comes with the long-term incentives and or stock. So the second part of your question says, you know, why should we design an approach that works for our organization? Well, really, that's not limited to executive compensation. We want to have an approach for all of our compensation, for every employee that makes sense. And that all ties back to compensation philosophy and strategy and also our finances. And I think we talked about that on our first podcast uh, when we were talking about compensation. But if I'm also thinking about why it's smart for executive comp to really tie that back to our philosophy and our strategy, it's because of the, well, two reasons really. One, the costs related to executive comp, right? We're talking big ticket employees here, if you will, and big ticket packages, and also the visibility that their comp packages will often receive in the media. You know, if we're a nonprofit, it's on our 990. So people have a window into our organization and we don't want to leave people doubting or questioning, right? Why is this the package that it is? I know we're going to dig into the elements of some of that long-term incentive that compensate that um, are part of the compensation package. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, I know you mentioned about perquisites, which used to be very common. Yeah. What are some of those perquisites that were common and why did they die? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. So if I get my laundry list of, of perks that executives used to receive, well, the company car, first class airline travel, membership dues at a country club, membership dues at the airline clubs like the um, United Club or, you know, Delta has theirs and so forth, spouse travel, meals, right? There were a lot of these perks additional life insurance, medical benefits that were extra. Why did they die out? Mm-hmm. Transparency, right? Mm-hmm. People started to hear about this and they would ask, well, why is that CEO always flying first class when they're only flying to Atlanta, right? Assuming yes. if they're coming from New York, it's an hour and a half flight. I think coach is okay. Now, if they were going to Japan or Hawaii, okay, a long distance trip makes sense, right? So that that stakeholder transparency, people were questioning and saying, is this the best use of an organization's funds? You saw that particularly with nonprofit organizations. On the for-profit side, particularly with the publicly traded companies, in some instances, they were saying this company is not doing well at all, right? And this leader may be driving this company into the ground. So why are they getting all this, right? Let's, let's look at the message we're sending. So that's why we've seen that shift away from a lot of those perks. And now you still have, you know, first class travel for international flights, right? That kind of a thing. Maybe there's an organization provided car or car allowance if this person does a lot of traveling, right? And and driving. So does the perk make sense vis-a-vis what that incumbent does? I bet some of our listeners still work at companies where a number of the things you mentioned are still offered. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's good for them and for all of us to sort of know the trend is away from that. I remember it wasn't that long ago we heard about was it the CEO, uh, one of the CEOs in the, in the continuum of CEOs at GE that used to have a second airplane that would go to wherever he, he went on the company airline, but a second jet would also go in case something happened to the first one because it was so important that he not miss that next meeting. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if that was GE or not, but it was a story I thought, oh my goodness, I think that's a, a perquisite that could probably go away. Uh, yes. <laughs> As someone who spent a lot of hours in airports, yeah, that would be a nice luxury to have, but probably not the best use of the company's dollars. You know, I worked for a firm, again, early in my career that had incredible perks for their executives or partners. And when the firm got bought out, Mm -hmm. they did away with all of those. Now the salaries were substantially increased, but they did away with all that perks. And I thought that was an interesting philosophy to basically say, we're going to pay you more, but then you can pay for those things yourself. Mm -hmm. And I do think it it created a better transparency. Mm -hmm. There's nothing worse than getting on an airplane, a bunch of people from the same company, and you realize that the bosses are sitting up in first class (laughs) and the schmucks like me are back in coach. That just doesn't feel good. So I'm kind of glad. I'm glad the trend is. Oh, yes. It's democratized, right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, Jennifer, what are some of the common elements of executive compensation packages? If I think about an executive compensation package, there's salary, like we've just talked about here. There will also be some kind of short-term incentive. And when I'm saying short-term, that means that that incentive will be paid out within a year's time, right? So the goals are something that we're going to be able to hit within a year. 
Building on that, we've also got, of course, our benefits package, right? The health insurance, the retirement plan, the paid time off, if they're actually able to use it, right? They're all of those same elements that you or I as staff employees might receive. And then we get into that long-term incentive, which may be in cash, it may be stock options or phantom stock. We could have a whole separate podcast just talking about stock and uh, the various iterations of that. But no matter the form, whether you're choosing a long-term incentive that pays out in cash or some kind of stock vehicle, the point is that we want our executives not only to be thinking about the here and now, but also down the road. Right, so these are focusing the executives on the long term. So three to five years from now, these are the goals that should be achieved, or this is where we, we think the stock should be at this point. Right? So we're making, as executives, we're making decisions that not only help us be successful today, but also down the road because they have that line of sight, which you or I, let's say in the HR department, wouldn't necessarily have. Perks, there may be some perks like, like we've talked about. And again, as long as they're tied into that role and the role's needs, you know, travel, for example, that can still be an appropriate fit. One other element of executive comp that we don't always see with the whole rest of the organization are additional retirement options. So there may be a deferred compensation plan where they're not getting the tax breaks or the benefits that come along with, say, a 401k or a 403b plan, but they're able to put away more money towards retirement. So that can be an additional benefit for your executives. Jennifer, thank you for that. It was, I think, really helpful. I know our listeners are interested, what is the difference between stock options and RSUs? I know they both involve stock, but what is the difference? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you know, stock can get so complicated because you've mentioned two options there, stock, uh, no pun intended, stock options and RSUs or restricted stock units. And then we can also get into stock purchase plans and phantom stock and restricted stock grants and, and all these things. It becomes exceedingly complicated. But let, let's focus on those two main ones that you've mentioned because these are probably top of mind for most of your listeners. So if we think about a stock option, what is that? So this is going to be for our publicly traded companies where they are giving their employees what are called stock options which means that they have the opportunity to purchase stock at a certain price point. Right. So if I think back to, oh, again, you know, 20 years, you know, a lot of companies were giving out stock options. I had a lot of friends who did that and they would hold on to those stocks options. And as soon as they would vest, they would buy the shares and then sell them and they would make a nice profit off of that. So that was some additional compensation for them. There are tax implications associated with stock options, but for the most part, for purposes of our podcast, what you need to know is that someone has to hold on to those shares for at least a year, right? That's, that's the main goal there. And that's changed since the last 20 years or so. But stock options can be issued to employees, non-employees, uh, members of the board, for example, board of directors, but there's a lot of rules related to them. 
Now the other one, a restricted stock unit or an RSU. Now, what is that? How does that differ? Well, RSUs are a lot like phantom stock because if I'm the employee and I receive this RSU, I don't actually own part of the company like I would with a stock option. On the other hand, it's a little bit like paper ownership or paper money in some ways. So you're seeing a restricted stock units more with privately held for-profit organizations who want to mimic the idea of stock options. So they can say to their candidates or to their employees, well, we're privately held, so we don't have stock, but we're going to try and mimic that for you. So that way you're still getting the benefit, as it were, of stock, right? Seeing your hard work have a positive impact in our company's valuation, which then can turn into more income down the road for you. So that's the short course on the difference between stock options and RSUs. Earlier in my career, I received stock options and some of them were underwater by the time they expired, but some that actually matured, I was able to buy the stock at a great price. The gain I made from that, I bought two cemetery plots for my husband and I, and he still hasn't forgiven me. He's always, <laughs> he's always saying, that's what you decided to do with that long-term incentive. I said, long-term here. The key is long-term. <laughs> it's, it's a real estate investment for the long-term, but he's still kind of a sore subject around my house. Oh, no. Well, <laughs> if we ever meet him, we'll be sure not to mention that. But Thank you. Sure, that's very wise thinking about long-term. And also, you know, if you think about that option, it wasn't money that you necessarily had, you know, that you took out exactly. of a savings account. Exactly. And you put it towards something you need. All of us will need, of course, and very, very wise. I like it. I do too. Susan, I think you took the term long term to a yes. whole new level. <laughs> I did oh, indeed. To yeah. eternity, yes. <laughs> So Jennifer, how does executive comp differ in for-profit versus non-profit organizations? Well, one big difference is what we've been talking about here related to stock. You know, whether, you know, in the for-profit, whether you're publicly traded or privately held, you can get some kind of stock activity happening there. But when you're in a nonprofit organization, that doesn't exist. So that is one key difference between those compensation packages. The other has to do with the laws surrounding executive compensation. So if I think about my publicly traded organizations, they're dealing with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and that's going to impact what's happening with executive comp because so much of their packages are going to be tied with long-term incentives and stocks and so forth. If I think about nonprofit organizations, on the other hand, they are concerned with the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, and their intermediate sanctions. And again, we could have a whole podcast just talking about the IRS intermediate sanctions, but the, the short synopsis of those is that board members have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the organization's income and revenues are being spent appropriately and not overcompensating the executives. And so every year there needs to be a study done on executive compensation to make sure that it is within market and no one has been overcompensated. 
because if an executive is found to be overcompensated, there are penalties and fines that can be levied against that executive, against those board members who approved that compensation package, and depending on how egregious the overcompensation was, in theory, that nonprofit could lose their nonprofit tax status. So there's a lot at stake. So for our nonprofit organizations, they want to make sure that they get that executive comp, quote unquote, right. The third element that differs is the amount of transparency. Now, certainly with our for-profit organizations and the ones that are publicly traded, right, we hear about them on the news, there are stockholder meetings, so there's a, a lot that goes on there. Our privately held for-profits, it's a little different. Right? Those internal owners, of course, will know what's happening. And depending on what's happening, maybe that might make it into the news, but it's not quite as transparent, especially with family-owned businesses. You don't see as much transparency there. With our nonprofit organizations, you've got the IRS Form 990, right? So you've got transparency there. Our funders, our donors, the organizations we get grants from, they're all going to look at executive comp and say, is this appropriate? Is this the right use of dollars? The public may weigh in as well. So you've got so many stakeholders that we have to be aware of their perspectives and how that then impacts executive comp. I've done a little work with some not-for-profits and I've, I was so surprised those 990s are available. Anybody any public person could go out and take a look and see the compensation, the perks of any not-for-profit mm -hmm. executive. Very mm -hmm. surprising. It's a good idea to be transparent. Good idea. Exactly. Right? Yes. And, and part of the, you know, we talked about perks a few moments ago. And the 990 form went through a change a few years back. And when that change happened, that's when the value of the perks that were being given to mm. nonprofit executives really came to the forefront. And people started to say, oh, why are you paying for this? Why are you paying for that? Or internally, the boards or the executives said to themselves, I don't know if we want to tell everyone that we're paying for this or that. And so let's, let's shift those dollars into a different aspect of the executive comp program. Very interesting. So Jennifer, who needs to be involved in an executive compensation process in any organization? So executive comp is not a siloed activity you know, for the domain of the one or two executive comp specialists on your staff. Certainly, HR needs to be involved. It's critical that they are part of that process because they've got the insight on compensation, the expertise related to compensation and total rewards, and all the different surveys for benchmarking. But we need to expand out. So we should have our board of directors or board of trustees, whatever they're called in your organization, they need to be involved. It may not be the whole board. It might be the executive committee, an HR and governance committee, a finance committee, for example, but some part of the board needs to be involved. In addition, you may want to bring in some outside consultants to help, right, to do their own review and say, yes, we don't have overcompensation or mm, this might be a concern. How do we rework our compensation package? Legal counsel may be appropriate as well, depending on, you know, if we've got a contract involved with some of the executives and do we need to renegotiate contracts? And last but not least, 
I'm going to caveat this. To a certain extent, our CEO, president, executive director, whoever that top leader is in the organization should be involved. How are they involved? Well, they can give their recommendations on salary increases, bonuses, total rewards package adjustments for the people below them, for the executives who report into them. So that might be a CFO, a CMO, a CHRO, for example. But that top leader should not be involved in approving his or her own compensation package. Right? That is truly the responsibility of the board. Jennifer, you mentioned a minute ago, too, about having a comp study or getting market data to ensure that executive comp is appropriate. Do you recommend that, or even is it required for some organizations, that that be done annually, or can you go a couple years? Oh, yes. That's often a question related to everything in compensation. Do we have to look at this annually or can we do it, say, every other year? Best practice is every year. Yes. Okay. So that's my recommendation because markets change. You may have turnover and you're dealing with a different set of incumbents. You may have board turnover and they may have different philosophies than the previous board members. So best practice is to do that review every year. And in fact, for the nonprofits on their 990 form, before they list out the compensation for the executives, there's a series of questions with checkbox answers that need to be responded to. And one of those is, did you do a compensation study for that year? Right? So the IRS is even wow. saying, yeah, this is a good idea. Let's, <laughs> let's stay on top of that. Yeah. yeah. By the way, we've mentioned Form 990 a couple times now. If some yes. of our listeners are not familiar with that form, it's, I think of it sort of as a tax return for nonprofits, yes. although mm -hmm. nonprofits don't pay tax generally. So it's really considered to be an informational return where donors or yes. other people can go view some of this information. Absolutely. Yes, that's a perfect way to think about it. It's like our uh, 1040 that we submit yeah. each year. The nonprofits submit that 990. And we talked about a little bit earlier about transparency and the availability of these forms. One website that I go to is, it used to be called GuideStar. G-U-I-D-E-S-T-A-R, guidestar.org. They recently merged with another organization called Candid, C-A-N-D-I-D. Anyone, you can set up an account. There's no charge. You can go in there and look up all of these tax forms for any nonprofit that you can think of and they have in their database. Yeah. So Jennifer, there's been a lot of noise. Every time there's like annual meetings of some of the really large corporations in the world where shareholders Sometimes there's activists talking about the CEO pay. Often there'll be a proxy or a, I'm sorry, not a proxy, a, what do you call it? A, uh, one of the things they vote on. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, of course I'm blanking on it as yeah, well. Yeah, the word. Yeah. Okay. Say on pay is the, the yes. general term say, that we're thinking about here. Yeah. Well, I'd love your perspective on it. The say on pay. Are executives out there earning too much? What's going on in your, from your world? Wow. What a loaded question. Oh my gosh. Because it's really a spectrum of responses that I could give here. And I can certainly think of some egregious examples in the for-profit space of leaders who are making millions and millions of dollars and driving companies into the ground. You know, like 
why are we paying them that much? You know, either do something different or exit them and let's get some new leadership in there. On the other end of the extreme, and I, I have to chuckle because with my uh, students where I teach an undergraduate class in HR, when we get to the lesson on compensation, we always talk about this topic. And there's a case study that we do related to uh, CVS pharmacies. And the question that's posed is exactly the one that you've asked here. Should the CEO make that much? And the students without fail always say that the CEO should make the same as the retail staff, right? So everyone should be making $15 an hour. And on the one hand, I can appreciate that, right? You don't want such a difference in pay that we're hearing about in the news. At the same time, the CEO, the CFO, all of those roles, there's much more complexity than a retail clerk, let's say. Not to say that either job is not important, rather they both are to the success of the organization. But with executives, there's a lot more risk, there's a lot more complexity. And because of that, the rewards should be higher, right? More than $15 an hour in our, our basic health insurance, let's say. But if I think about you know, most of my clients, they're in the middle of that spectrum where when I do an analysis for them, I don't see that they are necessarily overpaid vis-a-vis -vis the market data that we have, whether we're looking at base pay or incentives or the total rewards package. Now, certainly there may be an outlier here or there that ties back to unique skill sets that that person has and the supply and demand for that talent, particularly in a national recruiting market. But for the most part, if my clients share their information broadly with everyone listening to this podcast, I don't think anyone would say, wow, these people are terribly overpaid in, in the millions of dollars and, and something needs to be done here. But there are examples out there and we hear them on the news where that is the case. Fair enough. Jennifer, we heard at the beginning of the pandemic that executives of many organizations were taking pay cuts. Yes. Is it too early to tell still what impact the pandemic might have on executive comp or how that might play out going forward? Oh, that is the second hottest question of the year, right? <laughs> executive comp was number one and this is number two here. Yes, you know, in terms of executive comp and staff compensation as well, a lot of unknowns around what is the long-term impact of COVID-19 on people's salaries and bonuses and benefits plans. To your point, I know of many organizations where the executives took a pay cut. Some were larger than others. A lot of that hinged on the industry that those organizations were in and how COVID impacted their revenue. So some, if I think about, let's say those in the hospitality industry, oh, decimated, right? Because no one was traveling for months and months. So larger cuts there, certainly no bonuses unless it's going to be some kind of retention tool, a golden handcuff. If I think about those in healthcare, you know, unfortunately, some of those organizations, their business was booming, albeit for the wrong reasons, but, you know, so that may help them. At the same time, reimbursements may not be where they need to be. So they may, may be facing some challenging times as well. Some manufacturing, on the other hand, can't get the product out fast enough. And there we could say, well, there's no need for a pay cut. And in fact, 
maybe we need variable comp all around for everyone just to keep up with the demand for our product. So lots of unknowns. I suspect that we are going to see overall a slight decline in base compensation. We'll probably see more of a decline in total cash compensation, which is base plus bonus or incentive because of the economic impacts of this year and how that plays out into 2021 and 22 will depend on how long we're in this situation, right? When does a vaccine come? Is it effective? When does the economy get jump-started again? When can we open up our businesses and our restaurants and our movie theaters like we're used to? Yeah, it is so interesting to me to think about, as, as you mentioned, the impact that some organizations are thriving more than others, and yet some, as you said, were decimated by it. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Yes, yes. And, and hopefully good all around. That's, that's what we're looking for. Yes. And for, for those who face those challenges, how can they re-energize themselves and maybe change their product or service mix to be successful in our quote unquote new normal? Right. Mm. Amen. So Jennifer, what else do our listeners need to know? Oh, what else do our listeners need to know? They need to know stakeholder transparency that is essential and we've been talking about that over the last uh, few minutes here so keep that in mind because even if you think we are a privately held company no one's going to know what we pay our executives people find a way it will come out and in light of that you want to ask yourself a few questions as you are designing incentive plans, executive compensation plans. Ask yourself, if I was that third party stakeholder, what would I think of this? Would I think this is a good use of funds? Would I think it's a waste? Would I have questions? Are there ethical issues perhaps related to this? So always keep that third party stakeholder point of view in mind when you're doing your compensation work. Also, for our nonprofit listeners, ask yourselves, if I donated funds to this organization, would I be comfortable with how they're being spent? Or for both our, our not-for-profit and our for-profit organizations, if this comp program or if this executive was on the front page of, insert your favorite newspaper here, how comfortable would I feel? about that or if CNN was broadcasting this would I be comfortable with this comp package or would I have some issues and if your gut is telling you mm, I think there's some issues here take the time go back investigate rework as necessary so that way you've got that full confidence in your programs and in your recommendations yeah I do think that's so interesting I've spent my entire career in privately held organizations and Susan spent most of hers in publicly held mm -hmm. and so I'm always fascinated to see in the newspaper when they publish salaries of, of course you know governmental units do that too mm -hmm. publicly held companies I just always like cringe at the thought of my salary being in the paper, which I'm sure it never will be, but I'm, I'm always fascinated by what's going through people's minds when they see their salary blasted in the, in the newspaper. 
So. Exactly. I think it was always tough after you have a particularly difficult year in a publicly traded company, and then the annual report comes out, and you realize that the CEO took home quite a bit of money. I think it can mm -hmm. be troubling. So I think that's such great advice for us, Jennifer. Yeah. And Jennifer, how can our listeners reach out to you if they're interested in finding out more or using your services? Thank you. Yes. And certainly if anyone listening to this podcast has questions, I'm happy to connect with you on LinkedIn. Also, you can visit my company's website. So the company name is Astron Solutions. That's A-S-T-R-O-N and then solutions, plural, all one word, dot com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, Jennifer, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, a word from our sponsors. Do you want more audio content that helps you find joy at work? The third joy-powered book, The Joy-Powered Team, is now available as an audio book. The Joy-Powered Team helps business leaders and associates build strong, inclusive teams navigate workplace challenges, revitalize teams who falter, and thrive as teams evolve. You can find the Joy Powered Team in print, ebook, and audiobook on Amazon or on our website at getjoypowered.com slash books. Jody, for this episode, we have a best practice sharing where we get a chance to share some of the great ideas we've heard from many of our listeners. So today, we asked, how are you supporting your employees' mental health during these challenging times? And we heard a number of things. So the first one was that one company hired a fitness coach to create and deliver not classes for their employees, but kids' fitness classes that he delivers via Zoom for children going to school virtually. I ah, love that. Me too. I think that's a trend that companies now are thinking about the whole family as a part of their benefits and not just the employee themselves. So. so true. So there's a company named Nimbus out of Massachusetts, and they began a first virtual ukulele building class. Kind of a, <laughs> yes, they sent everyone a kit, and then they had instructions on how to do it yourself. I thought that was really fun. And then another company out of Massachusetts named Arrakis, they ended up doing a virtual cocktail making class with an instructor. Now, I've seen this really pick up in um, popularity. I, I'm going to be going to a virtual conference next week. Uh, it's actually the Vermont and New Hampshire SHRM conference. And they have as one of their activities at, at the end of the day, a cocktail making class. And they're going to send you all the in ingredients you need to have. They're not going to send you the ingredients, but I think that's so clever. And they'll all make the drink together. I love it. And another one we heard from a company hired homework helpers who their employees could engage for their children who they didn't feel equipped to help. I know if my kids were home, I would definitely be using that benefit right now. <laughs> I know I admire every parent out there, any listener that you're helping with your children's homework or their daily work activities because they're going to school remotely. I admire you, really, your heroes. And so the final one we heard about was Rome Therapeutics. They recently hired a stand-up comic to perform over Zoom, which I thought was a great idea, you know, trying to bring levity to it. Be careful. Every time anybody hires a comedian, I think you better screen all the material first, please. We want to make sure they don't cross lines. They're not offensive. 
But boy, if you can keep it clean, what a great way to pick up spirits during these challenging times. Yeah, you know, it's funny. One time when I was an internal HR director, I hired a comedian for an internal event where we also invited our clients to, and I had heard him speak before, but I can tell you the entire time he was talking, I was praying, like, please don't say anything offensive. So it was a very nerve-wracking experience for me to worry about that, but it was a big hit. Wonderful. And I think for your mental health right now, anything that we can do to help our employees with their resiliency makes good sense. Great. Love it. Susan, we have a listener question today. The question is, why are companies so reluctant to give feedback to job candidates who don't get the role? Secondly, why do they often only give employee references as job title and dates of employment? and if they have been given permission, even salary information. I do think this is very true. Uh, I believe that companies, when they're turning someone down for a job, they're reluctant to be very transparent. I think the fear is that, will this candidate be angry and come back after me? Will they read into it that they've been discriminated in some way, shape, or form? So I think that with risk concerns, that most businesses are very reluctant. Now, I will tell you that I hope that what I'm hearing is that there may be a turn in that, that employers are recognizing that it's very important to have a great candidate experience. And candidates will tell you, they just want to know. They're They're not there to fight with you. They just want to understand what could they do better the next time. So I am, as I talk to HR professionals, I do hear them saying, you know, I am trying very hard to tell them what it was. Sometimes it truly is that they were the second best candidate. We hired somebody else who met 99% of what we needed, and this person had 94%. They were great. We couldn't hire them because we found the better candidate. But sometimes there is something that happened during the process. Maybe they really blew it in one of the interviews. And if I can give them the feedback that they started talking about XYZ, and in our company, that's something that we don't endorse or don't believe in or we don't, it's it's not consistent with how we approach things. If you can do it, it's such a gift, and I think it's going to help your employment brand. So I'm a fan of being as honest as you humanly can be. Wow. Now, I think that is why also on the, for the second part of that question, companies, when someone has left them, they get called for references. And the company who's trying to hire them want to know, how was their attendance? You know, what was their team spirit like? Is this somebody who really produced quality results? Companies are reluctant to share that information because, again, they don't want to have an angry ex-employee or they don't want to share some information. Maybe they got rid of somebody because they weren't a great performer at project management or whatever. They just want to keep it close to the vest and it's about risk mitigation. Right, wrong, I don't know, but I don't see that trend changing very much. Jody, what are you seeing or hearing? Yeah, I agree. It's just a tough dilemma. I mean, I've had the same thing happen to me where people have called for references and it's it's just a tough area, right? To be totally transparent and honest and you don't want to hurt the person and yet you want to help the company looking to hire them. And I, it's much simpler to say, we just give out the dates of employment, right? It's sort of an easy go-to. And you're consistent about it. So even if you have a great employee versus not so great, if you're consistent, there is, you know, risk mitigation there. Yeah. So good luck to all of you who are facing that. I, we love transparency where you can have it, but we also understand that you're trying to balance risk. Right. 
Jody, it's time for In the News. The EEOC announced in June 2020 that employers cannot require employees to undergo COVID-19 antibody testing before permitting employees to re-enter the workplace. I can see why employers would want to. It'd give you some sense of comfort. We don't know if antibodies is going to protect you for, for very long, but you can right. see why they'd want to. But the EEOC has come out strongly about this. What they're saying is you can take employees' temperatures before they enter your workplace. You can require employees to stay home if they exhibit any kind of symptoms that could be interpreted to be COVID-19. You can require all of your employees to take a COVID-19 test before coming into work. And you can require a note from a doctor certifying fitness for duty. Of course, during a pandemic, do you really want your employees to have to go to a doctor? I think that's something to consider. The one right. thing you cannot do is have them take a COVID-19 antibody testing. Lots of new rules coming out around that for sure. That's right. Well, thank you so much for joining today. And make it a joy-powered day. If you would like SHRM recertification credit for listening to this podcast, please visit getjoypowered.com SHRM. You'll find an evaluation of the podcast and once you complete the evaluation, you will see the SHRM recertification credit code and a link to a proof of participation certificate. Again, that's getjoypowered.com SHRM. Thank you for listening, and thanks for your dedication to the HR profession. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the Joy Powered Workspace podcast. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it. And let us know what you think of our podcast by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people find our show. The Joy Powered Workspace podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about Joy Powered and find our books and blogs at getjoypowered.com. We're at Joy Powered on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Sign up for our monthly email newsletter at getjoypower.com slash newsletter. If you have comments, suggestions, or questions about anything related to business or HR, you can leave us a voicemail at 317-688-1613 or email us at joypowered at gmail.com. We hope you tune in next time. Make it a joy-powered day.